All right, this morning we'll be in Daniel chapter 7. We're going to study the first 12 verses. Uh, I'm planning on three sermons total in Daniel chapter 7, so, uh, so please keep that in mind as we, as we go through our study today. All right, Daniel chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, in 2013, uh, a guy named uh, Sir Mark Ivan Rogers was appointed as the United Kingdom's permanent representative to the European Union. Uh, he was essentially the ambassador from the UK to the EU. Uh, now, here in the United States, we're used to uh, diplomats and um, ambassadors being political appointees, right? So when there's a new president, uh, he appoints a new bunch of ambassadors to different countries, and when he leaves office, it's up to the next president whether to uh, retain or replace those people. But, but in the UK, it's a little different. Uh, diplomats in the United Kingdom are uh, regular civil servants. They just have a job. It's not a political thing. 
Um, it, so for them, being a diplomat is just a job like uh, the people who do building inspections or check the accuracy of gas pumps and things like that. And so for them, uh, it's just they serve and they follow the instructions of whoever's in power. They're just part of the bureau bureaucracy. And so in December 2016, as it was becoming clear uh, in what manner the United Kingdom would leave the European Union, uh, this memo from Sir Ivan was leaked. And in it, he shared serious doubts about how easy or how quick of a process it would be for the UK to negotiate the trade terms of its exit from the EU. So for Sir Ivan, he'd spent years quietly doing his job. I mean, as quiet as such a high-profile position can be, but he just did his job, and nobody needed to know who he was. But then this vote came, and it was decided that the UK would leave the EU. And, and so after years of his nondescript work, the ground just shifted beneath his feet. I think you can imagine how demoralizing it would have been for him, especially as in his expert, experienced opinion, it was not going to be a, a very easy job, no matter how easy the people who he worked for said it was going to be. And so even though he continued to do his work in good faith, after this memo was leaked, he was forced to resign almost a year before his term was up. As we get here to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is a man who's just had the ground shifted beneath his feet. For it says that he sees this vision in the first year of Belshazzar. So this takes us back in time a little bit uh, to between the uh, events of Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. So this is partway into Daniel's career uh, as, a, as a bureaucrat in the apparatus of the Babylonian Empire. And the ground shifts beneath his feet because he had been honored and elevated under Nebuchadnezzar. But we know from Daniel chapter 5 that during Belshazzar's reign, he was forgotten. Now, Daniel knew Belshazzar before he started to rule Babylon. And Daniel had to know that Belshazzar was weak and immoral. As he tells Belshazzar in, in chapter 5, Belshazzar, you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how he was humbled by the high God, and you have not heeded that message. You know the story, and you have not followed in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel knows at the beginning of Belshazzar's uh, reign that he faces a tough slog ahead of him. And so here we are. We're in the second half of Daniel. As many of you know, the second half is really different from the first half, because the, the first half of the book of Daniel, it does report some visions and some miraculous signs, but 
it's easy to understand. It's, this, this, this is narrative. It, it's telling a story, right? It's a collection of stories from Daniel's service in Babylon. We see some moments where God breaks in and does something amazing. But overall, it's grounded and it's simple. They're stories. But we find something so different here in the second half of Daniel. For Daniel reports this series of fantastic dreams and visions that God gives to him. Nothing that you see in them is familiar. Daniel's not writing bedtime stories from the Babylonian court anymore. I don't, I, I can't say this for certain, but I imagine most of you have seen very strange things in your dreams. I, I have boring dreams. Um, I had a, a dream not too long ago where I was at a friend's wedding reception and the, the bar ran out of drinks. And so the bartender went and bought spare ribs for everybody to make up for it. Those, those are the kinds of dreams I have. But you ask my dad and my sister about their dreams, and their dreams are filled with aliens and spaceships and monsters, and I don't get it. Where do they get this stuff? But that's more like what Daniel sees in his dreams. But there's a difference between Daniel's dreams and my dad's and sister's dreams. Because Daniel's dreams are real. Or perhaps maybe better put a picture of reality. Because this is what we call apocalyptic literature. It comes from the Greek word apokalyptos, which means revelation. It's the word at the heading of the revelation to John where he, he writes uh, that, that he has received the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same word. So when we talk about apocalyptic literature in the scripture, we talk about God using this imagery to reveal things that are true, to reveal things that, that are beyond our human sight. In Daniel's visions, God is revealing to him and to you the spiritual truth that can't be seen by natural sight. And so these analogies are drawn to things that we have seen by natural sight so we can start to understand them. And, and so as we study these visions, we need to be careful not to push the analogies farther than they should be pushed. And we need to remember that the symbols would have been understood to a guy like Daniel. They would have been understood to their original audience, even though in some cases we also, later in history, have a more detailed understanding of what the symbols stood for, but, but they had to mean something to the original audience. So now Daniel has a good track record as an interpreter of dreams because God has given him the ability to interpret dreams and understand what they mean. But now, Daniel starts to have dreams of his own. This is many years into Daniel's career. So why is he now having dreams of his own? And I, I believe it's because God wanted to give him the encouragement, the strength that it took to endure the 13 or 14 years of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel could see with his own eyes the things that had happened when Nebuchadnezzar was king. Daniel could see how he had been saved, how his friends had been saved, and 
how Nebuchadnezzar ultimately came to acknowledge the king of heaven. But now he's going to go through a long period of time without seeing these things happen. And so God gives him spiritual context for everything he's seen and experienced so far and everything that he's about to experience. God is showing Daniel what's happening beyond the scenes what, and, and, and that he still has everything under control. Now, if you pay any attention at all, I, I don't think I need to tell you that, that the governments and powers of this world make a mockery of justice and the common good. Not as bad as they could be, but, but still, they fall so far short of what God intended them to be. And yet the temptation is always still there, isn't it, to go along with them, to conform to their program, to live a life that, that is in keeping with what they value. Or there's a temptation to despair, that this is all there is, that, that living under the world and all the brutality that it has is all that there is and that nothing will ever change for the better. But God is showing Daniel here and he's showing you that his ways are different and better and that he can and will put a stop to the carnage. And so as we look at today's passage, we want to look first at the vision of the beasts and what they represent. And then at the vision of God and what he represents. And so as the vision begins, Daniel sees this great sea stirred up by the four winds of heaven. Now, in the ancient Near East, the sea was a symbol for the primordial chaos of the world. If, if you read any uh, ancient Near Eastern creation myths, almost universally, uh, there's some sort of battle that is waged between some force of good and some force of chaos that comes up out of the sea. Uh, and, and even in the creation story of Genesis chapter 1, we actually see this theme revived, although in truth, for in, in the beginning of Genesis, it says that darkness was upon the face of the deep, and it says that the earth was without form and void. It's referring to these waters that covered the earth, that God, not through battle, not through a struggle, but by his word, by simply willing it to be, uh, he conquers the chaos and makes the dry land appear and sets the sea within its borders. And so here we have this great sea, already a symbol of chaos that is even further stirred up by, by these great winds of heaven so that the chaos is multiplied. The chaos becomes more chaotic. And so as these beasts rise up out of the sea, which an angel later tells Daniel refers to the kings of the earth, as the beasts rise up out of the sea, it's made clear that the beasts are born out of chaos, that they're born out of godlessness. They're absolutely contrasted with the order that God imposes on the world in creation and redemption. 
So in short, these beasts are born, are worldly and they're born from humanity's sinlessness. And they tend towards the destruction of all that God created good. They tend towards the uncreation of all that God created. And in fact, these beasts are so grotesque, they, they can't, or three of them can't even be compared to any beast that exists on earth. You know, these aren't adorable chimeras like the hippogriff of Harry Potter or Mr. Tumnus from the Chronicles of Narnia. Look, these beasts inspire terror. If you saw one on the street, you'd, you wouldn't want to pet it. You wouldn't give it a carrot. You'd run. And, but most importantly, these beasts are not animals that God created in the real world. For it says in creation that God made each animal after its kind. But these are, are jumbled up combinations and mashups of different kinds of animals. They're not part of the world that God created good. Now, the real world kingdoms and kings that these beasts represent have been the subject of so much debate in the history of interpretation, and there aren't a ton of points of agreement. And in fact, generally the way that you interpret the different parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue from Daniel chapter 2 is going to inform the way you interpret these four beasts here because chapters 2 and 7 are, are meant to shed light on each other. And yet with that said, remember, these are symbols and images that meant something to Daniel. And so the specific identity of each beast doesn't necessarily affect the overall point that much. Daniel didn't need to know the future. He didn't need to know about the Medo-Persian Empire. He didn't need to know about Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire to get the message. He didn't need to know the future to see in this vision that the kings and kingdoms of this world are arrayed against God and are contrasted with him by their grotesqueness against his glory. Still, we can see, and almost all interpreters agree, that the first beast should generally be interpreted as Babylon. Um, for this first beast combines elements of both the lion and the eagle. And we see elsewhere in scripture how Babylon is referred to using these animals as pictures. For example, in Jeremiah 50, verse 17, and Lamentations chapter 4, verse 19. And this also correlates with the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's earlier dream, just as the lion is kind of the king of beasts and the eagle the king of the birds. And there's also this point that the mind of a man was given to it. And he was made to stand on two feet like a man. And, and so we see here most likely an allusion to the way that Nebuchadnezzar eventually, eventually uh, came to give glory and honor to the true God. The way that humanity ought to, to do. Next, we have the bear. A fearsome beast, you don't 
want to run into a bear in the woods, but not, as, not considered as deadly or terrifying as the lion. And this phrase, raised up on one side, is kind of difficult to interpret, but the overall picture is of this, this animal, this bear that has been devouring and is still on the prowl, still on the move, uh, not sated with the feast that it's already enjoyed, but being told to continue onward as it continues to devour even more. We have next another chimera, this leopard with four wings and four heads. And, you know, the leopard is a fast animal. And the wings, wings are a symbol of of speed. So you have speed on top of speed. Uh, And dominion being given to it. So there's this suddenness, right? This swiftness as this new beast continues onward in its own conquest, uh, surprisingly uh, fast. And then we come to the fourth beast. Now, not only does this beast not come as an animal that we know from creation, but not even able to be described in terms of parts of animals that we know. It's so hideous, so horrible, that comparisons and and analogies simply disappear. And Daniel can only describe it as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It's different from the beast before in its superlative destruction and its complete separation from all that God has made good. And then yet another phase in the vision where Daniel draws our attention to these ten horns and then an eleventh horn that destroys three of the others. Uh, The commentator Edward J. Young suggests that the fourth beast, and then the separate stage of the examination of the ten horns indicates first the Roman Empire, but then all the kingdoms of history that directly or indirectly descend from it. And I think he's probably right. For Remember, we, we see symbols in apocalyptic literature, and this number ten is used to indicate a complete number, that the complete number of the kingdoms of the earth are now being looked at and described. So it's not a literal, ordinal number 10, but a symbol uh, for the kingdoms of the earth. And then we have this little horn, one that destroys a few of the other kingdoms and boasts about itself rather than give any glory to God. Not even content to keep its silence and simply go about its work of, of destruction and, and rampage. It, it takes up its cause specifically against God, boasting in itself and refusing to give any glory to God. The other beasts seem to be opposing God out of ignorance. It's simply in their nature. But this one, this little horn, goes farther in rebellion, taunting God even though it's only human. It's the worst offender of God's enemies, and we see in this the Antichrist, not necessarily as an individual, particular historical figure, but as as a symbol for all that opposes God directly to his face. 
in league with our enemy. And in a couple sermons from now, we'll spend a lot more time on this beast because the angel that interprets the vision gives Daniel a lot more information to deal with. In short, Daniel's beasts in these visions show, show the dark side of real-world political power as, as an outrageous burlesque freak show. This fourth beast in particular we'll see wears out the saints of the Most High. And, and again, if you're paying attention, I don't have to tell you about the real-world truth that this imagery is teaching. Um, it's often complained that we're in a particular, particularly dire time of history and, and things sometimes get worse and sometimes get better, but this has been the story of, of how it's always been ever since the fall. Uh, one human leader lording it over uh, the people that are supposed to be under their care. You know, in many places of the world today, Christians are killed or heavily persecuted. We see increasing persecution in in China, in India in recent years. Even in Germany, there's, there's serious and well-founded concerns that neo-Nazism, of all things, is growing within the ranks of their military. And here, closer to home in our own country, I don't need to tell you about the moral bankruptcy or the crassness and sometimes even violence of debate between right and left and all the while with third parties off on the side making quasi-messianic statements about their ability to fix it all. Now, to be sure, Daniel's vision doesn't mean that government power is irredeemable. We even see the first beast being made right, get being given the mind of a man. And Daniel himself, he continues his government career for at least another 17 years. Why not just run and hide in the desert if it's so impossible to deal with? And Paul writes in Romans 13 that, the, that rulers are God's servant for your good. But still we see here that even for the good that can be done and sometimes is done, there's something rotten at the heart of worldly power and that God's people need to be wise to it. So much for the vision of the beasts. Now we come to the vision of this ancient of days. And you couldn't imagine a greater contrast between the reign of terror below and the dignity of God above. For while the beasts of the world's powers are thriving in the chaos, uh, destroying and devouring and conquering, and even boasting against God, we see above a picture of calm, of assurance, as thrones are placed and the Ancient of Days simply takes his seat. God appears as a king, dignified and regal. God sits in his heavenly court, and that's that. And this vision of the Ancient of Days highlights three aspects of God's character. It highlights his purity, his wisdom, and his power. And these aspects of his character are highlighted to show that he is able to deal effortlessly with the beasts down below. And so first, his purity is highlighted, for he's dressed in clothing 
as white as snow. For clean and filthy garments are biblical images used to represent moral purity and moral decay. God is completely separate from all sin. Look, the the beasts below seek dominion by conquering, by killing human beings. Now, it's true that since the fall, sometimes warfare is justified, but we know that warfare in reality has rarely been justified. And to say nothing of the way conquering nations uh, degrade the people that they conquer. Even apart from warfare, the kingdoms of this world are known often for sexual promiscuity, for drunkenness, for greed. But the Ancient of Days is above it all. He's above all sin. And he is fully qualified to justly judge the kingdoms of the earth. We see his wisdom reflected in his title, the Ancient of Days, and in the comparison of his hair to white, pure wool, the white hairs that come with age. In in Daniel's context, in in the ancient Israelite context, wisdom particularly reflects uh, not uh, philosophy detached from reality, but it reflects savvy. It reflects know-how, the knowledge and the ability to get things done. You can even read the book of Proverbs as this extended treatment of how to use wisdom and observation to accomplish righteous living in a fallen world. And so we see here in God's wisdom that he knows exactly how to wield his power for exactly the right purposes and fully to achieve his perfect ends. And then we see his power represented in this fiery throne, which having, it has wheels. It appears to be sort of a cross between a throne and a chariot. And so even though he appears in this vision as a venerable old man, His strength is undiminished and power remains his. Without need for weapons or terror, he's able to bring even these nasty beasts to heal. He will put a stop to the beasts. He has the power to do it. And so as the books are opened to judge the kingdoms of the world, the outcome is never in doubt. And yet, even as this scene continues to unfold, we see yet one more glimpse of the depravity of all that's happening down below. Because this boastful little horn just keeps right on boasting. He's not taking any notice of of what's happening above. He, He doesn't run or try to hide or plead for mercy. He just keeps on trusting in his own greatness. He shows no respect to the Lord of heaven, no awareness that his goose is cooked. And yet with scarcely any comment or elaboration, he just comes to an unceremonious end. He's, it simply says that he's killed, that his body is destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. No comment necessary. Snuffed out with no more ceremony or fanfare than blowing out a candle. The other beasts are also judged. 
but as their opposition to God was less blatant, they still do receive a certain amount of mercy. So they have their dominion taken away, but for a while their lives are prolonged. Now this isn't the only victory that's won by God against the powers of this world. Daniel sees a vision of it here in the heavenly realm, but it happened here on earth too. For Jesus led a life of purity, obeying his father perfectly. He embodied perfect wisdom, always knowing how to act. And in his death, he showed wisdom that comes only from God and not from man. In the end, all power is given to him to preserve his people, to preserve the thousands, thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. He preserves his people and he will win the final victory against sin and death when he comes again. Jesus is God's purity, wisdom, and power embodied here on earth to save sinners like you and me. And in these pictures of Jesus and and this picture of the Ancient of Days, we see how God's purity, wisdom, and power are so different from what the world has to offer. But they're the only purity, wisdom, and power that have any ability to overcome the world. For in the world, purity and wisdom and power seem to come in so many forms. It could be this strict adherence to the principles of a political movement. It could be clean eating and working out, dressing respectably, consuming worldly goods to show off your desired social status. And all of these things come with, come with laws of their own, with moral or quasi-moral demands. They promise a reward if you just stick to their program. They have the appearance of wisdom, showing your friends, yourself, and the haters that you know how to live the good life. And they even give a sense of moral authority or power over people who aren't on the same program. But these things will fail you. They can't save you. You can't stick to the program well enough. And they're not even the right program to begin with. All of these things are things that are born out of the chaos, not out of God. But Jesus stuck with God's program perfectly by his purity, wisdom, and power. And he gained for himself a great nation, people like you and me, whom he loves dearly and whom he's going to bring home to be with him one day. You know, this vision that Daniel has focuses on worldly political power, and I don't know what sort of political pressure will or won't come against the church here in the United States. You know, we've been blessed for a long time to have substantial freedom from pressure. The church has rarely had that in her history. But I know that wherever there is pressure and persecution, that God can overcome it that God proclaims his glory even in the midst of it, and that he may allow it for a time to strengthen and purify his people, but he will overcome it. He will throw it down, and in the meantime, he gives strength to endure. 
And I know that even where there's not outright persecution, there's pressure to conform, to, to look to the state and its projects as our savior and protector. But here in Daniel, we see that it's a lie. That no worldly power ultimately can bring you to the kingdom of God because it doesn't come from the kingdom of God. And so the, the state may look to human eyes like our watchdog. But Daniel sees that it's a hideous beast. But I know that no matter what form the pressure may come, we have every reason to be confident in God because he alone is able to conquer all that is evil and to defend us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so different from the world and all that it claims to offer. And we thank you that you follow through on your promises to us. We thank you that you have the power to overcome on our behalf and to save us, to rescue us. We thank you that Jesus' own purity and wisdom and power are applied to us by your Holy Spirit, that all the righteousness that he ever accomplished is credited to us. We thank you that we have confidence that you will overcome. And that even now you give us strength to endure. And sometimes even to overcome in this life. To remind us to be confident in the full victory that you will, that you will bring about when Jesus returns. And so Father, help us to live in that confidence. Help us to live lives unafraid and help us to look to you for our hope and give glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.